Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 40, verses 25 through 31. If you have the blue pew Bible, that's on page 600. Uh, Please turn there, prepare for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 40, verses 25 through 31. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be with y'all. My name is Ryan Anderson, and I am the RUF campus minister at TCU. Uh, Fort Worth Press has long loved on college students through that ministry. And so uh, I just say thank you uh, for all that you do to, uh, to really reach out and to, and to show God's grace, to put it on display for students right up the road. Um, if you're a parent this weekend because you're in town for Parents Weekend, if you're here today, welcome, as Darwin said. We are, we're glad to have you here today. And so it's a real joy to, to come before you today and to be able to open up God's Word um, together. I know I need it today. Uh, perhaps you do. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, would you uh, open our eyes to see your beauty, namely the person and work of Jesus today. Oh, that he would reign supreme in our hearts. But Lord, for that to happen, we need for you to open our eyes. We need for you by your Spirit to come open our hearts, to uh, make soft, O Lord, hard ground, that we might receive you. Lord, uh, encourage us, we pray. Uh, Be with me as I am faint and I am weary. Uh, Be with my brothers and sisters who need you as well. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, we're looking today at a very famous passage uh, from the book of Isaiah, something that you're probably familiar with if you've been familiar with the Bible. If, If the Bible is not familiar to you, uh, you probably have heard this on a Hallmark card or something like that somewhere. So uh, it's a very popular text. But before we get into it, I want to ask you uh, a series of questions. What do you need when you've reached your limits? What uh, do you desire when you're at the end of your proverbial rope? What do you need when ability, desire, and circumstance fail you? What does it look like to reach the end of what you're able to do? The comedian uh, Brian Regan, uh, if you've listened to him, he has a little bit where he talks about a uh, spelling bee. And he says this about it. He says, you know where it all went wrong? He says, uh, it was the day they started the spelling bee. Because up until that day, I was an idiot. 
but nobody else knew it. He jokingly tells of the public humiliation that came with misspelling a word. He says something like this, spell a word wrong, sit down in front of your friends. I remember too, uh, when I was in third grade, I misspelled the word goes. I spelled it like hose, G-O-S-E. And I had to sit down in front of my friends. Thankfully, my teacher came over to me. She put her hand on my shoulder and said, everything's going to be okay. I needed a sympathy that day, and I'm sure glad I got it. What about when you reach the, reach the end of your courage? Not too long ago, in fact, last weekend, our two-year-old Evangeline heard what must, most of us are no longer scared of, thunder. She ran to me, uh, arms outstretched, and said, Daddy, scared. So I picked her up, and we walked outside, because I'm a mean dad, I suppose. And we sat on the porch, and she listened to thunder pealing as she, as she was in my lap. And I assured her that everything was going to be okay. She said, it's too loud, Daddy. And she soon got up and ran away, leaving me and her fear in the dust. What do you need when life gives you something that you didn't expect? My friends David and Aaron knew. Uh, They were at the hospital excited about the birth of their first child, Grace. And the delivery went swimmingly. However, in a few moments, the doctor would return with news that would change their life forever when he said, Grace has Down Syndrome. The words from Samuel Rodegast, the hymn writer, uh, they were the first words that Aaron quoted when she heard the news. She said, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, and death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him, I leave it all. What happens as well when you let go of the rope altogether? A couple at the church I once served knows this. She had found herself doing what she thought she would never do. Something that she could never dream or ever envision of. She found herself having an affair with another man. She had blown it. She had made a mess of things. But in the darkest moment of despair, she heard a faint whisper. I'll never leave you. Though you have blown it, I make all things new. Commitment. In the face of abject failure, the greatness and the nearness of God to someone who deserved it the least. So, what do you need? When ability... When desire, when circumstance fail, the same thing that Isaiah's first listeners needed. If you would have remembered, uh, if you remember anything about what's going on in history at this point, it's somewhere around the year 700 B.C. And about 25 years prior, uh, the, two, the ten tribes of Israel, they had long been split, have been now taken off into, Israel, into exile in Assyria, never to return. And now Judah was left alone for a while. Isaiah responds the first 39 chapters of his book saying heavy words of judgment. He says something to the effect of, you guys have blown it. You've abandoned God in practice. You give lip service to worshiping Him. And your ethical life is absolutely abominable. Something you cannot know, therefore, is coming. Something that you do not want is on its way. Something massive is about to happen. And it will be judgment through exile. The neighboring Babylons will come in and pull you out to their land. 
And after hearing such heavy words, it would have been real easy for God's people to wonder, is God done with us? Is it over? Is our story done? It would be easy to look at the absolute power of those Babylonians Babylonians marching in and to wonder, can God really do anything? These were heavy words, which brought about heavy hearts. But the heaviest words were yet to come. And here they are at the beginning of chapter 40. Comfort. Comfort. A word of comfort to people who had blown it. Israel would go into exile, no doubt, but they would come out. Their sin would neither drain God's love for them, nor would it end His purposes for them. And guess what, y'all? The same is true of us too, isn't it? Isn't it? You see, all of us know what it's like to blow it with God at some point in our life. I mean, it's only Sunday morning. Don't raise your hands. How many have already blown it, right? I know I have. I need God's mercy. But God in His marvelous care for us, He grabs us by the collar, as it were, and He says, listen to me. I am not through with you. I want you to be astounded at my plan for you, so much so that I dare you to compare me with anyone or anything. I am going to comfort you back into loving me. That's what he says in this text. And when you hear of God's unrelenting commitment like that, your strength begins to be replaced with new strength. You begin to mount, as it were, on fresh wings like that of the eagles. Real comfort here is had in this text for God's commitment to us far exceeds our ability to sin against Him. What do we need? When, we, uh, when ability, desire, and circumstance fail, we need a word of comfort. And we saw last week as Darwin preached uh, to us that this whole chapter is a word of profound comfort to God's people, which includes you and me. And that word is still on Isaiah's tongue as we close in these last seven chapters. So today, we're going to look, very simply, at how God comforts us. Three particular ways. First, He's going to point to His greatness. Secondly, He's going to remind us of His nearness. And then lastly, He is going to show us that He provides what he possesses. Those three things. Let's take a look. As he points to his greatness. Turn turn your eyes to uh, verses 25 and 26 there. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Isaiah's first thing that he says is look up. I want you to observe in the middle of the night sky all of the heavenly hosts that are out there. Now, the European Space Agency, which is, uh, I guess, somewhat of a counterpart of our NASA, they, uh, they, they estimate on their website that there are 10 to the 24th power stars out there in the universe. Now, because that number is, we can't relate to it, let me cut it another way. That's a trillion, trillions. And uh, the agency writes on their website, they say this, this is only a rough number. And they follow it with, nobody would try to count the stars individually. Yet our God does. And He not only counts them, He knows them by name. He calls them out, so to speak. Every night, He tells them to do their bidding. 
One commentator says this, that the stars are God's minions. Hey kids, do you remember Despicable Me? Do you remember Gru? Have you seen it? If you have, do you remember Gru and all his little yellow buddies, his minions? They did whatever he asked them to do. He commanded them to do. Well, the Bible says that the stars are like that. Every single one of them are like that with respect to God. That they go out, they do his bidding every night. That's what he does. And all of this, Isaiah says, is to illustrate how God comforts his people. He is highlighting his greatness, his absolute power. Now I ask you, why would pointing to the stars be a way of comforting his people? Well, remember the real threat that they faced. Babylon was marching. They had taken them. They had taken them away. And so God says, you may remember in verse 17 of this text, we didn't read it today. But look, turn your eyes there if you've got your Bible open. Listen to what Isaiah says, uh, what God says through Isaiah, what the Babylonians are. He lumps in there well the Americans, every single empire that's ever existed throughout the entirety of human history. Here's what he says. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. God is saying, you may wonder, Israel, in light of your present circumstances, if I'm actually able to do anything about it. And so he says, look at the stars. I want you to see that I flick the stars out at night. Rescuing you is small potatoes. I can do this. God puts his resume out on display every single night. Should Israel wonder, should we wonder about his ability to rescue them and us? I think we know this intuitively. You see, if you've ever been bullied, if you've ever been threatened, if you've ever been picked on, you know what it's like to have a champion in your corner who can defend you. We all have known our powerlessness at some point and long for somebody to change the situation. I read a story not long ago. The mother's only son lay breathless, lifeless. Her husband had since passed, so she would now be alone. She was unable to do a thing about it. She was face to face with her own powerlessness, yet... And the eyes of a sympathetic young man were upon her. His belly ached for compassion toward her. And listen to what one doctor writer writes on this man's experience. He says, And when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the casket that her son was in and said to the young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus uses all of his might to console and comfort that very widow. And he does the same for you and for me. Christian, I want to simply ask you today, what is your first thought that God has of you when you have blown it? What is it? Isaiah is saying that here in the midst, here in the midst, of abject failure, idolatry, and the whole nine yards, God is saying, I want you to comfort my people. Do you know that to be true of you today? It is. It is. How in the world could this be comforting? Well, perhaps it's a quite a simple point. 
if God can call out the stars by name, rescuing His people from the mess that they have made, preserving them for His glorious purposes, and restoring them to Himself is but a wave of the hand. You see, some might say at this moment, yeah, well, well, well what about, I mean, I still have to go through these hard times. I, say, well, yeah, sure. I understand there might be moments of real disciplining. That's what fathers do. But on the backside of that discipline, do you see God's favor toward you? His comforting heart being fully deployed to remind you of His great love for you. That's what Isaiah wants to point us to. It would be easy to think in this moment that, uh, well, yeah, that's great, Ryan. Uh, There's that God out there and He's really, really powerful. But does He actually want to do anything about it? Great, He has the ability to do something about it. But does He want to do anything for us? And that's where we turn our eyes now as we take a look at God reminding us, so to speak, of His great nearness. Look what else God says through Isaiah in verses 27 through 28 there. He says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. God responds, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. It would have been tempting to think, yeah, God is so big, but so what? So why would He care about us? Let me say this. If you were uh, a non-Israelite in that day and age, and you bowed down to Baal or Molech or something like that, that would have been an appropriate way of thinking about things. The gods had very little to do in the affairs of men. It's actually the same principle that we saw coming up through the ages through the Greeks. Aristotle's God was a disinterested mover. It's also, believe it or not, the way that our culture really thinks about God today. That He might be there, sure. But on the whole, if he cared, He's utterly disinterested in our lives. And Isaiah says, nothing could be further from the case with a God named Yahweh. Let's take a look at what I mean. Notice there in these verses in verse 27. You'll see there in your Bible, he says, My way is hidden from the Lord. And again, that pops up in verse 28, the Lord. And then again, down in 31, the Lord. And in your Bibles, the typeface is probably something like all uh, small caps. That is the publisher's way of highlighting to you the personal name of God. Yahweh is his name. And because of that, something is incredibly personal is going on. He is, he is highlighting personal, a personal name to get at the personal nature of His relationship with us. You might be reminded of Exodus chapter 34 where Moses has said, God, I want to see you. And God says, there's no way you can see me. You can't last in my presence. And so He says, okay, I'm, what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to cover you with my hand. And as I pass by, I will reveal my name to you. I will reveal my character and my nature to you. And you'll get to see the backside of it. And what does God say in that moment? In Exodus chapter 34, he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. But moreover, Isaiah is using the actual personal names of Israel themselves. You see it there when he says Jacob and Israel. These are incredibly personal names indicating 
This covenant relationship that God has with His people. One commentator, Young, puts it like this. There's a reason why both Jacob and Israel are named. If you know your Bible history, you know that's the same person. It's the same people group. And the reason he's using the name Jacob is because Jacob was Israel when they blew it. When they couldn't keep it together. Before wrestling with God, it represented a hard people. And then afterwards, after wrestling with God there, Jacob finds a new name, Israel. Representing, receiving God's blessing. That's what's going on in this text. God is saying, listen to me. I am intimately involved. You bet he gets involved, Isaiah is saying. He has made himself known to you. He has entered into covenant with you. Such that his very fame and reputation rests on yours and mine's flourishing as a people. That's insane that God would do that. But that's how much he loves us. That's how intimate he gets with us. Isaiah is saying the great power is not just out there, Israel. It is here. It is in your midst. Your creator is your covenant God. He is your redeemer. Later on in chapter 54, which we may look at, I don't know. But Isaiah says this, that your God is your maker, is your husband. That's how intimate he is with us. So not only does God have the ability to rescue and redeem, he actually wants to. He still loves them. He still cherishes them. God, God is big enough to do something about our lot. Yes, he is, absolutely. And he actually wants to. And by reminding them of this, Isaiah is saying, you have a God who is intimately involved in your affairs. Listen to a few words that God speaks of you today. And this is from the Old Testament, a place where people sort of think that God is angry at His people. Listen to this. He says this in Deuteronomy 7, You are my treasured possession. You're my gems. In Zechariah chapter 2, He says this, You know what you are? You're the apple of God's eye. He delights in you that much. And the other Z prophet, Zephaniah, In chapter 3, verse 17, we hear God singing lullabies over His people. That He rejoices over you with singing. This is how God thinks of you today. This is how near He is. The Apostle Paul, you might remember, he writes this in Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Some of us have found deep solace in that verse. Deep rest. Because we say, yes, God tells me not to be anxious. He says, bring my request before Him. But do you know what else He says right before it? He says, the Lord is at hand. The only thing that will relieve those anxieties, Paul is saying, is the very nearness of God. This is what is for you today, church. This is what is on offer. Can you believe it? Well, we haven't gone very much further and we have a little bit more to go because see, all we've done so far is said, yeah, okay, great, there's a great God out there. He's powerful and now he might be near, but that's a long way to go before saying that he'll actually get involved and do anything about it. Wouldn't that be a cruel thing? For God to be powerful, for him to be near to us and for him to do actually nothing to benefit and, to, and for, for our good. Isaiah's going to put those doubts to rest where we turn now. Take a look with me in these last couple of verses here. 
We're saying this, that He provides what He possesses. Look with me in chapter in verse 28. Do you see that? It says that He, God, does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, He increases strength. Did you notice the people's weaknesses and God's supply? The people's weaknesses, their lack, and God's very character? Do you see in verse 29 that He gives That He does something? Do you see Him giving from all that He is to comfort? To comfort those who are in great need. God is the one who does not grow faint or grow weary. He is the one who gives power so that those who are weary shall receive strength. You see this language here of being faint and weary. Let's hit that really, really quickly. The idea of faintness there is exhaustion because of the hardness of life. How many of you have ever known the fatigue that comes from the outside in? Your circumstances are such they just bear down on you and press on you and they exhaust you. That's what God's talking about. But there's more. This weariness that he speaks of is talking about an inside out weariness. It is becoming exhausted because of fruitless seeking. It's fruitless. All of our efforts are just futile, it feels like. And it leaves us tired. I want you to see, though, that grace comes to us. He he gives us. He doesn't just just say, I'm going to comfort you. Objectively. He's saying, you will be able to experience subjectively the real comfort that I give. Where do we see that? Well, you know the very popular verse there. He says that even youth shall be faint and weary. In 31, he says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. This idea of waiting is to rest. This idea of waiting is to trust. This idea of waiting is to look expectantly. And when we do it, so to speak, that God meets us there because He longs to not only extend comfort, but to have that comfort experienced. Working with college students, I get to see weariness all around me. As soon as you ask the question, hey, how you doing today? Do you know what they say? I'm telling on some of you guys because you're, you're here, you're a college student. They say, oh, man, I'm, so, I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted. I can't believe it. I'm like, you know, I'm like, yeah, I mean, staying up that late and not sleeping, we'll do that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. They're actually not lying. They're actually not lying. Why? Because they're actually spinning the hamster wheel of the heart, performing to try to make an identity for themselves while in school. They have on offer to them a billion other ways to try to find a name for themselves. You can look good, so to speak. You can find the right job or get in the right profession. Hey, you know what? Just make the great grades. Then you'll be somebody. You know, the great grace of the gospel is, though, if you stick around long enough, you get to see grace come home to them, too. You really do. Um, I was meeting with a college student not too long ago, and I was listening to him talk about how faint he had grown at the hypocrisy of the church that he had seen through his years. 
he had kind of just determined, I'm, I'm really done. And you know what? A friend kept him bringing him to RUF. Not that we're the Savior by any means. God uses us. But God began to really show him the power that was on offer to him. The real care that would come to him. And through his story, other people are actually being blessed. It's been amazing so much so. that These are his own words. Listen. He says, Grace is the best thing that has happened to me. Do you know that? Are you weary? Are you worn out? Do you know that God is not remaining distant? That He's near? That He gives what He possesses? That He renews strength? That He eagerly and delightfully gives what we so easily lack? That is what is on offer today in this text. How do we see this? Well, look, at, look with me. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but just listen for a moment. It is very, very interesting that Isaiah's whole program is basically built on what he says in some ways in, uh, in verse 15 of chapter 30. Listen to what he says. He says, It is in returning and in rest that your salvation will be had. It's in rest. And by resting, God meets us there. How do we see this? How do we see that God is near? He is not only saying, well, I make, make it to the end with you, but listen, you will make it to the end with me. I will not only be the one that preserves you, I will be the one who perseveres you, so to speak. Because I will be the one that gives you fresh joy and new joy by waiting on me. Listen to Chesterton who nails it. He says, pessimism is not in being tired of evil, but in being tired of good. Despair does not lie in being weary of suffering, but in weary of joy. Of joy. And where is great joy to be had? Well, Isn't there great joy to know that God Himself has so committed Himself to us that He will renew us? That He will do whatever it takes to sustain and to supply us? And doesn't that bring great joy to our hearts? That is what is being said here. And how does He do this? At one point in Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 14, He says this, I will ask the Father And He will give you another helper. And that's very telling. Because what He's actually saying is, is I will give you another comforter. The Holy Spirit. This is really, really interesting. Because I want you to see that the Holy Spirit's role is to actually comfort us. He is the member of the Trinity who has been charged with this duty. Keep them. See them through to the end. And he does it with great joy. With great joy. How does he do this though? How does the Spirit actually preserve us? He illumines. He shines a light on the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. I didn't mention this in the first sermon, but I'm going to take a moment now. How many of you all remember Simeon? You remember at Jesus' birth? Jesus' birth, Simeon, the old man, he's gone blind. He's saying, oh, I have waited for what? The consolation of Israel. That's very, very telling. Because what it means is God's people has long come back from exile. And yet they still long to be consoled. 
And then the baby Jesus is placed in his hands and he says, ah, at last, at last I've seen it. Simeon saw something. Do you? Simeon saw something. Do you? The Holy Spirit shines brightly on this finished work of Jesus because why? He is the great God that has come near to do good, to give what He possesses for us. Sayers, the the writer Dorothy Sayers says, He, Jesus, has Himself gone through the whole of human existence from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When He was a man, He played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. He is the proof that God will do all that is necessary to give strength to the faint. He was faint for us. He breathed His last, dying, that we might live. He was left alone. Isaiah would say that He was afflicted and stricken by God so that you and me might know the comfort that Isaiah is speaking of. So that when we, when you and me blow it, we might know the great comfort that God gives. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallelujah. Hallelujah that this is what is true of us today. Thank you for giving us Jesus. We ask that you would take these things and put them deep in our hearts that we might see how beautiful he is, how believable he is, and that our lives might be changed, that we might take joy in walking with you, that we may take great delight in serving our great King through loving you and loving others. We ask this all for your name's sake. Amen.